On episode 269 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn the top single strategies and tactics from Grand Slam champions with coach Paul Anacone. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Now, before we start this episode, I've got a super cool serve drill to share with you today about something called twist rotation. If you're just bending your knees when you serve but not twisting back and down, then you're easily leaving 5 to 10 miles per hour on the table. The best part of this drill is that you don't need to hit a ball to try it. It's living room safe. All you need is a few tennis balls. To check out the drill, go to tennisfiles.com slash crush it. Once you go to that link, you'll learn the twist rotation drill. And while you're there, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Crush It from my friend Will Hamilton at Fuzzy Yellow Balls. Crush It will show you 26 drills that allows you to generate power from your entire body so that you can hit your serve, forehand, and backhand much, much harder. To check out the drill, go to tennisfiles.com slash crush it. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S dot com slash C-R-U-S-H-I-T. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. This is Mirabon, and I'm really happy to have you listening to this week's show. And yeah, I'm just really excited because I have sectionals in about a week from now. I'm going to Midlothian, Virginia for a 9 mix sectional. So I have a 4-0 partner, and she's a very, very good player. I'm definitely going to be bumped up next year, I think. But yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. And so I've actually played, I think, eight out of the last nine days. So um, that's been really fun. Definitely getting into pretty good shape and just preparing as best as I can for sectionals. Uh, but enough about me. I want to help you get better through the podcast. And today I have a great conversation with Coach Paul Anacone, which many of you have heard of. He is a former professional tennis player, and one of the world's leading coaches and commentators in tennis. During his 14 years on tour as a player, Paul won three ATP titles and reached a career-high ranking of number 12 in singles. He also won the 1985 Australian Open doubles title and finished his career with 14 doubles titles. Uh, Paul is arguably best known for working with some of the most Incredible and accomplished players ever to pick up a racket, including Roger Federer, who, as we all know, just announced his retirement after Laver Cup, which is certainly sad as he's a legend. Paul also coached Pete Sampras, you probably heard of him, um, Tim Henman, and Sloane Stevens, among many others, uh, and most recently, Taylor Fritz. So yeah, Paul has a very extensive resume of both winning on the court and guiding his pupils to great success. And today, as I mentioned briefly in the intro, we're going to talk about top singles strategies and tactics from Paul. We talk about a range of topics, um, 
all about single strategy, including how to use your strengths against your opponent's weaknesses, the mentality that you must have before each point, the optimal pre-point routine, the best tactics against counterpunchers and servant volleyers, the most common tactical mistakes that club-level players make, Novak Djokovic's favorite return of serve play, approach shot tactics, and much more. So you definitely want to tune into this one. I hope you enjoy it and definitely have a pen and paper as this is yet another interview that I recorded previously that I just went back through. Um, As I'd mentioned last week, I was going back through a bunch of different interviews, uh, not podcast interviews, but uh, just other content that I've created. And this one was just chock full of, of really fantastic stuff. So I figured we need to put this on the podcast. And so I really hope that you enjoy it. And I'm definitely applying quite a bit of the information from the interview to what I do on the court. So without further ado, here is my interview with legendary coach and fantastic player as well, Paul Anacone. Today, we're going to talk about, as I mentioned, single strategies to help everybody with their game. And Paul, uh, if you don't mind, I want to open up with a quote from your book, actually. And you wrote that the world of tennis is a world of strategy structured by concerted planning, which serves as a roadmap for achieving goals. Having a long-term objective as well as a series of short-term plans is vital. And so, Paul, I was wondering if you could dive a little deeper into this concept and perhaps give us, give us an example of how an amateur player would set both a long-term objective and then a series of short-term plans to achieve that particular objective. Yeah, I think we're about one of the biggest problems with most players, and it's club players too, is that we kind of get hung up on the immediacy of um, you know our daily matches or or this tournament or this club match this weekend and when you do that i think you really kind of circumvent uh the process of giving yourself a good long-term plan and a big picture to try to help you kind of march more towards um your potential whatever that potential is and that's why i think um you know a lot of the stuff in my book really isn't even so much about um achieving greatness it's about maximizing potential and one of the things that kind of resonated with me in my career coaching Pete and uh, Roger and Tim and and my time with Sloan as well is that those players that achieve great things tend to figure out how to manage adversity and how to be pragmatic in times of great emotion and also they never seem to lose focus on the big picture um you know I can remember vividly Pete losing at the French Open um, and being really disappointed, yet also being able to snap back pretty quickly, realizing that Wimbledon's around the corner. Um, and, and so I think, you know, one of the things that I would kind of harp on from the quote that you mentioned is that, you know, set up a process so that you do have short-term goals. You have a short-term goal and a short-term plan and it can be result oriented, it can be process oriented, whatever. But at the end of the day, you want it to be, you know, in stride with your long term plans and your big picture scenario. And I think that's really important. Um, what happens to most of us uh, in life is that, you know, when we get sidetracked in our short term plans, we hit the panic button. Um, 
we start to second guess things. We wonder if we're on the right path. And, and that doesn't mean don't ever think of ad adapting and adjusting. What it does mean is don't always think of adapting and adjusting. And a lot of people tend to hit that panic button and right away start changing things. So set up your plans short term, uh, your short term goals, things you want to achieve, more importantly, the way you want to achieve it, and then continue evaluating and monitoring and make sure that it's in line with what you want to do down the road because um, things can happen when you're clear and you're committed and confident in what you're doing. Great stuff as always, Paul. And are there any examples that maybe you've even had players uh, have in regards to uh, long-term long objectives where they've actually set a bad you know, long-term objective? Like, is there a difference or an optimal type of objective that we should be setting? That's a, I mean, that's a great question. And one of the challenges is I think you have to match it up with your personality. Um, some people like result orientation. Uh, Pete Sampras was great at that. He, he, he was one of these, the rare few that he could set up things where it was result oriented, but not put so much pressure on himself that he didn't execute. Um, Roger Federer likes the entire process. He likes, to pro he likes to practice. He likes to train. He likes to travel. So, you know, you have to figure out what motivates you, number one, and what dynamic you can set up that kind of meets your individual needs without putting so much emphasis on an individual desire to achieve something that you kind of don't paralyze yourself with too much perceived expectation or the dreaded what if, you know, what if this happens or doesn't happen. So, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it is um, really knowing yourself. And I, you know, I can't really think, I can't really think uh, of an individual situation where that happened because the players that I was with were so good at kind of setting up a structure that kind of mirrored what they wanted to do. It doesn't mean they always achieved it, but they knew what they were wanted to do and how they were going to get there. And I think that that's, that's kind of the, the note to self. That's the takeaway. Um, set up that process that matches your personality. Give yourself a chance with a bunch of short-term things to meet the long-term uh, long um, desires. Great stuff, Paul. So now narrowing it down a bit, I was wondering if you could maybe give us uh, an inside scoop, if you will, on the process that you generally uh, went through with your players in, uh, in creating uh, particular strategies or game plans against your opponents. Were there any commonalities with your players that, you know, as far as process that you went through? Yeah, I mean, everybody does things a little differently, right? I mean, we all like to plan and strategize a little differently. Uh, Pete Sampras liked things pretty concise, pretty short, and pretty clear. Uh, Roger and Tim both like to talk about things. Um, they like to sit down. Uh, Roger and I, uh, for a period of time, you know, would look at video and look at different patterns and video that were successful against certain players. Um, but the one thing that was really common um, about all the players that I coached and also kind of what my philosophy is um, with these players is, you know, the simple theme is how do you do what you do best and point it towards your opponent's weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And when you set up the dynamic of a conversation like that, it's pretty clear about how you want to start the conversation because then um, you know most players know what they do best and then when you talk about the opponent's weaknesses then you can talk about point structure and ways to attack those weaknesses. Good stuff Paul and um, 
I, I think at least from the amateur player point of view, and this is geared more towards uh, the pro game now for a second at least, uh, sometimes when you watch the pros, it seems like there are no weaknesses. So <laughs> when you have a player who's, that you're coaching who's playing against a fantastic player, is there always some sort of weakness or something that you can go towards, uh, you know, uh, attack? Yeah, usually. I mean, look, there's no player's perfect. You know, uh, you look at uh, look at Roger. You know, historically, the people, Rafa Nadal, like to attack Roger's backhand with his lefty forehand. You know, Rafa Nadal, you know, one of the greatest of all time, you know, you have to find ways to attack his serve because if you let the point start, then he gets really offensive. Novak Djokovic isn't a great server, so you have to find ways to pressure his second serve. Um, so everybody at every level has something that they have a little bit uh, of a weakness on, and you just have to figure out how to plug that in. Um, but you're right. I mean, the pro level, look, that's why they're pros, right? There's not going to be many glaring things that go wrong, but you still, you're talking about narrow margins and you're talking about opportunities to exploit you know, players with just minimal gaps. So you just have to figure out how to do that. And you know, I really appreciate you pointing that out, Paul, because I, you know, I play a bunch of USA leagues and sometimes tournaments. And sometimes I hear my fellow players uh, who they have to face somebody very good. They just say, oh, he has no weaknesses. Like, I don't know what to do, but it's just, it's a matter of, I think, just really thinking deep, clear and clearly and analyzing uh, the game uh, instead of kind of giving up there. But um, appreciate that, Paul. And now just a, a couple of general, so general strategies. Are there a couple either general strategies or big concepts that you would advise amateur players to incorporate so that they can be successful or have a good start in the matches? Sure. I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, one of the themes that I think works across the board, doesn't matter what your level is, is just kind of, um, the ability to stay committed to a point-for-point -point mentality. So how disciplined can you be pre-point time and time again to be ready to play the next point? And that goes right into our thoughts about small-term, I mean, short-term planning and goals, is that you want to make sure that you are ready to play each point like it's match point and it's your last point. And if you can set that up as a habit, what tends to happen is you start to make less unforced errors, um, and the errors that you do make tend to be execution errors versus shot selection errors. Now, execution errors are just a matter of picking the right shot and missing the ball. And I always opt for those because if you're playing the right shots, that means you're going to get better at doing the right things in the big moments and you're going to miss less. If you start to make bad decisions and miss shots, then you have to do double education. First, it was a bad decision. Why was it a bad decision? Second, you missed the shot. What did you do wrong technically with the shot? So the more you can simplify it and make the good decisions and, and make the evaluations about the decision-making, and the more you can focus on that point-for-point -point mentality, regardless of what your level is, you're going to maximize your skill set. Great stuff, Paul. And do you have any tips for us on how to focus more on that point-for-point -point mentality? Because I suppose, you know, sometimes some players will try it and then they'll stray away from it. And so if you have any advice on that, that would be... Okay. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's kind of like everything else in life, right? You want a pre-point routine that's pretty similar. You know, try to make sure when you get up to the line and you're serving, you know, you bounce the ball the same amount of times. You have an idea in your mind what you want to do at this point serve wide, hit the first ball to the open court, 
serve and volley at the body, whatever it is, have that theme in mind and try to repeat that kind of pre-serve routine every time, because then you're giving yourself a very programmed um, habit and, and a good one, because that'll give you focus on how you want to play. Um, so I, I think the idea is try to make things uh, habit forming, good habit forming, want to make things simple and clear in your mind about what you're trying to do. Um, and then you want to make sure you have a clear picture of it in your mind before you step up to the line. Appreciate that, Paul. And so in my, uh, my research do, uh, doing some digging, uh, I actually found that you created some uh, DVDs on playing different types of players, uh, which is very cool. And so I thought perhaps I'd ask you about a couple of strategies uh, for a couple of different types of players. And I think one of the ones that the player types that amateurs have the most trouble with is what uh, I think you can guess uh, the pusher or uh, maybe a better word is a counter puncher. So playing these types of players, I was wondering if there's any, you know, a couple of strategies that you could give us on how to be successful against these players. Yeah, it's tough playing counter punches, right? Because they absorb your pace and then redirect balls. And sometimes the better shot you hit, the more difficult it is to hit the next shot because they absorb it and redirect it so well. So the thing about playing a counterpuncher is you have to be really clear in your mind um, before you play the match, understanding that it's going to take an extra ball or two to finish each point. And you have to accept that. Um, and, and also, given you know, counterpuncher styles, sometimes you have to figure out ways to break up their rhythm so that they're not as comfortable. And they've got to create stuff themselves using low slices or high heavy rollers to them. Let them have to create something that tends to be an area of discomfort for a counter puncher because they want to absorb and redirect what you do with them. Um, so to me, really a lot of it is about patience on understanding that it's going to take an extra shot or two. Uh, number two would be breaking up that rhythm. Um, and the third thing would be most counter punchers are pretty good movers. Make sure you go behind them for point finishing shots, uh, uh, especially early in the match so that they can't just turn and run. Most good counterpunchers just want to turn and run to the open court. So if you can give them something to think, to, to think about, it makes it easier to finish the point. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great stuff, Paul. Appreciate that. And if there was perhaps one shot that you would advise players to develop and work on in order to defeat this type of player, um, what what would you say to work on? Well, the most important shot, I think, in the game, both is the serve and the return of serve, you know, right at the start of the rally. So if you can get really um, effective and efficient at hitting targets on your serve, 
it's going to be much easier to get on the offense. And conversely, if you can get effective on being a good returner of the second serve, it's going to pressure your opponent's first serve percentage. So serve and return a serve to me are both key areas uh, of focus, and that should open up opportunities to try to get the counterpuncher in uh, kind of an imbalanced situation. Awesome, Paul. And so another type of player that we – Sometimes uh, encounter, although I, I, I would say actually probably four or five and above rather than below that, but is a servant volleyer. So um, with them, uh, are there any particular strategies? I mean, I know for me, I, I try to hit heavy uh, spinning balls that, you know, would dip to their feet. But are there any, any particular strategies that you would advise us to use on these players? Yeah, well, just, just, just make sure the big thing is to make sure that um, – you give yourself a big target early on. A lot of people against certain volleyers right away um, try to get clean winners. You don't have to do that. You can be a little bit more selective. Um, so give yourself the opportunity to go right at them when they serve and volley, right? So they've got to create space and uh, then they can volley from an uncomfortable or off balance situation. And then you can beat them uh, on the next ball. So look at the one-two punch. So don't feel like if it's a certain volleyer, you have to right away hit a winner. Um, give yourself a little bit of margin to go right at the body. And remember that when you play a certain volleyer, you play someone um, that likes to come forward. If you hit the ball laterally uh, in the rally, it's much more difficult to come forward. So keep them going side to side, and then they can't come forward. That's another key component about keeping the certain volleyer or the net rusher back. Thanks, Paul. And regarding the lob for these players, are there any specific situations where you would recommend that we employ the lob against these servant volleyers? 100%. Beginning of matches, especially against the net crashing servant volleyer, when you see someone that likes to hit the first volley and then get right on the net, you have to invest on lobbing over their head. Even if you miss a few long, let them know that that's a, that is one of the tactics you're going to use because it gets them off the net. Awesome. Early match, especially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. And uh, Paul, as far as players, so as I'll direct this towards amateurs, especially in your experience, you know, helping out uh, amateur players, what are some uh, tactical mistakes that you have found that, that they make? One of the biggest things that amateurs do is what we all do when we're fans of sports. You know, the amateurs want to go out and they want to hit their forehand like Rafa or they want to serve like Isner, or they want to, you know, and you have to realize that the biggest thing is pace of shot is actually less important than location of shot. So if you can get location and consistency down first, it's much easier to, to increase how hard you hit it. If you try to go with speed first, it's much more difficult to then get accuracy. So I encourage all players um, at all levels, especially initially, to try to get really consistent with their shot location um, and then figure out how consistently they can do it, then gradually increase how hard they hit the ball. Great, Paul. And so you mentioned, of course, uh, previously that the serve and return are you know, two of the <laughs> most important parts of the game, of course. So I was wondering if I could ask you, Paul, about particular patterns, a couple of patterns that we should uh, employ and we can first tackle um, patterns uh, as a server. Well, for me, you know, always think about how you want to set up a point. In other words, today in, in the game of tennis and at every level, the most important thing is the serve plus one, serve and first strike. So you want to think of how you want to structure it. In other words, 
serve wide, first ball to the open court. Or if you're playing a great counterpuncher, serve wide, first ball behind them. So try to think one shot ahead if you can early on. Um, and the patterns themselves, to me, aren't that import, as important as the structure of setting them up and trying to execute it. Serve at the body, then go big because your opponent's um, off balance from the body serve. Serve up the middle, then your opponent's going to be in the middle of the court, then you can go either side. Whatever it is, see if you can believe in those patterns and get really disciplined about hitting the location and then the first ball. And then on return to serve, again, I think people get too confused and too wrapped up in trying to hit winners. Look at the best returners in the world. Watch uh, Novak Djokovic when he's returning well. Notice where a ma the majority of his returns go. He goes strong up the middle of the court because what happens is the player then has to try to get out of the way, create their own angle, and by doing that, Novak then is in the middle of the court for the next ball and could go either sideline to open the court up. That works at every level. You can do that at the club level too. So don't be hung up on hitting a perfect return to the side. Go strong up the middle of the court. Thanks for that, Paul. And uh, this might be more of a mindset question, but just curious to ask you this particular situation, which uh, I and I'm sure many players, of, of course, have struggled with, is you know when you're up against a much higher-ranked opponent, uh, talk to us through any particular strategies or mindset, uh, you know, shifts that we might need to make in order to to give us the best chance, at least, to be successful against those types of players. Well, one of the most important things about playing better players, and I did it on the Pro Tour tours, when I played a great player, I actually felt a sense of relaxation because the level of expectation drops, right? You're not supposed to win that match. So then you could take a breath and just kind of play. And so then once that expectation drops, figure out what you do well um, and see if you can free up and allow yourself to maximize how well you can play because you're not supposed to win. That being said, try to be comfortable playing within your own uh, talent level. Uh, one of the most important things to tell young players, whatever level they're playing at is, you don't have to be better than you are to compete with this person. You know, when I work with a young pro, when you're going to go play, uh, uh, you know, if you're ranked 150 and you're playing a top 10 guy, don't think you have to be perfect. Play your style of play and watch how that plays you into the match, and then you adjust from there. Great stuff, Paul. And yeah, I actually spoke recently with Jeff Salzenstein, who I don't know if you remember this match, but he played Michael Chang, and he was actually very relaxed, and he won the first set, but then he dropped the next three, and he mentioned that after that first set, he felt uh, almost like he had already won, and then he had relaxed too much. So I was wondering, too, if maybe you could comment uh, on situations where we – are, are successful midway in a match and, and, and how we can keep our mindset and, and prevent uh, dropping off? Because this is a common issue where you win the first set and then you, you, your level drops. Sure. It's like I said, we talked about before. How, how disciplined can you be in your pre-point routine? You know, how, how disciplined can you be point after point after point? And by discipline, I also mean keeping the thoughts out keeping the thoughts out, I've got the first set under my belt, or I'm down a set, whatever. See how well you can focus on that point. And the better you get at focusing on the point and focusing on whatever the strategy is, the more likely you're going to be able to sustain it throughout a match. You know, one of my favorite players is David Ferrer. And, mm -hmm. and he, you know, he might be, along with Rafa on the men's side, the two best at just playing every single point 
and not having any fear of consequences because all they're, all they're thinking about is the next point, not what if I win it, what if I lose it, where am I, what the score is, is this is what I want to do this point. And when you do that time and time again, it becomes habit. So no matter what your level is, you can try to execute that. Great stuff, Paul. You read my mind perfectly. Uh, one of my questions was going to be about your favorite uh, tacticians on the tour. Um, but another question for you, Paul, is do you have any tips for us on how we can spot tendencies of other players, our opponents? Because I think that can obviously make or break a match if we can actually figure out uh, certain tendencies of, of players and exploit them. Well, a simple thing is just to watch watch them and watch their location, right? Watch the location of where their shot selection and where the shots go. I mean, everybody has things they prefer to do. The best players do everything pretty well. But if you spend a little bit of time watching, um, and generally the lesser the talent level, the more likely the ball is going to go to the big part of the court. So most balls will be cross court. And the, the more risky a player plays, the more that means you want to make them hit extra balls. But to me, spotting patterns is about just kind of scouting. Gotcha, Paul. Are there any sorts of strategies or tactics that you see in the, the modern game today, um, I guess modern because it's now, that you perhaps did not see maybe five or ten years ago? Well, now the game is much more lateral. I think the players play much more side-to-side and a lot less north-south. And when they come to the net now, it's usually you very rarely see sequential volleying, meaning you very rarely see a player have to hit two or three volleys to finish a point because they come to the net behind such big shots and because the players pass so well. So now it's more about how well can you move at the baseline, how well can you control baseline patterns, and what is the likelihood that you're going to create short balls off of the balls that you hit? Other than that, I don't think, you know, to me, it's just the, the fact that it's been become much more lateral. Gotcha, Paul. And when we're put on the defense, you know, we're, we're scrambling to get, uh, to get a ball that's very far wide and have to move laterally. Do you have any tips on shot selections? Like, you know, what types of shots we should be hitting in that situation? When you go laterally, the two things can happen. Either it's so far laterally that you have to come up with a point-ending shot, and that's just you go for the big one and you try to finish it. Or are you in good enough position where you can give yourself a little bit of time by hitting a high, heavy roller and getting back into the court? So in the moment, you've got to decide that. And from there, just think about trying to find a way where you can get back into a court position that's neutral. And that generally is a higher, slower ball deep in the court so you can retrieve and get back and start up again. Thanks, Paul. So I, I don't know if this is a controversial question or not, but it kind of appeared, uh, you know, when, when Nadal played Kyrgios. But I'm just, just curious about your take on the, um, the underhand serve because I've heard from some people that this, you know, it's a fair tactic and, you know, it should be used. Um, if you can win the point, then, then do it. Um, but I was just wondering if, this might be a shot that maybe you would encourage some people to try if you know that you're up against a player who wouldn't deal with it well, or if it's maybe something you, you're better off not using. Yeah, no, why not? I mean, if, if someone's back at the fence returning, serve underhand. That's like saying, well, the guy's playing deep in the court. I probably shouldn't hit a drop shot. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not a – there's no – to me, there's no nothing wrong with it. Um, you're trying to figure out how to win, trying to take advantage of a situation that your player is giving you, your opponent's giving you. So, for instance, if a player 
you're playing a huge server and the returner decides to stand way inside the baseline, then you serve body serve so they can't get out of the way. So you just have to figure out strategically what's there for you to use. And I've got no problem with the underhand serve. Gotcha, Paul. And one more question for you uh, regarding strategy. Um, is there any sort of um, out-of-the-box strategy, tactic, or um, you know, big picture concept that maybe you would recommend that we try to use that you think maybe would be considered unconventional or isn't used uh, so often by the mainstream? Yeah, one simple theme is don't get hung up on having, when you do have a short ball to come to the net, don't get hung up on having to hit uh, the ball close to the sidelines. Go strong up the middle of the court. People don't come in up the middle enough. You can't come in up the middle off a neutral ball. But if you hit it hard, it's very difficult for the player to create enough time and enough angle to pass on you. So logically, a lot of people think I've got to hit it where my my opponent isn't. Sometimes right at them is a good play. Yeah, I love that play. Uh, it's something that I, I rarely see. Um, so I, I really appreciate you mentioning that, Paul. So, Paul, uh, I just want to ask you, too, uh, what's what's in store for you? I mean, I know that you've been traveling, doing a lot of work for Tennis Channel, commentating. So what's next in store? Um, I've got a couple more weeks Tennis Channel stuff. Um, Madrid's coming up. And then uh, I will head over to Paris for the French Open and then come back and then go back over for the grass court season. So it's going to be busy time of the year, but a uh, fun time. I can't wait. Exciting. Racking up the miles there, Paul. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also I mentioned, uh, of course, a couple of times your fantastic book, Coaching for Life. So I was wondering where uh, the audience can go to find that book and check it out. Well, thanks, Mirvan. That's great. You can go to paulanacone.com or you can go to – um, Irie Books, I-R-I-E dot, Iriebooks.com or Amazon and uh, Amazon.com. So all three places, you can give it an order and uh, hopefully have a read and enjoy it. For sure, Paul. And we'll, uh, everybody will have the links uh, below this video. So definitely uh, look below and click uh, for sure. And uh, Paul, what is the best place for people to connect with you, learn more about you and, uh, you know, just conversate uh, with you? Yeah, I mean, I guess probably my website, uh, going to my website, which is more just, but my website's basically there for my book. Um, I've got a Facebook page that periodically I throw on some things about what's going on in the tennis world, but the Facebook page is probably the best thing. Um, and I throw up some stuff on Instagram now and again, and uh, on Twitter. So the social media platforms are usually pretty uh, good good place to see what's going on. I tend not to be an overly active user, but if there's stuff on my mind or something happened in the tennis world, then uh, I try to participate. Good stuff. Have you uh, gotten into Instagram stories much yet? A little bit. My daughter's trying to help me with it. <laughs> cool. Cool. Okay. You're in good hands then. <laughs> All right. I should be good. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and so last question for you, Paul, which uh, often I like to use to close. Uh, what is one key action step that you can give us uh, to help us improve our strategy? The biggest thing I would say is make sure you realize every day you play, every ball you're hit, hitting, you're either creating good habits or bad habits. And try to make sure that you give yourself really good decisions about each shot you hit. Not necessarily if it's in or out, is it the right shot? And if you're hitting the right shot, you're going to get better. Love it, Paul. Well, as I mentioned, uh, it's it's always a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And I uh, want to thank you so much for everything you're doing for uh, the tennis world. 
And I uh, really appreciate it. I hope to see you at the very least at the City Open in D.C., uh, if not at more tournaments. But, uh, yeah, I wish you all the best, and thanks so much for, uh, for being on the summit. really appreciate it. Thanks, Mirabon. I appreciate it. If I don't see you sooner, I'll see you in Washington. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Coach Paul Anacone. Paul, thanks for all the contributions you made to Tennis Summit and the podcast over the several years. Uh, definitely a really cool guy and very giving to the sport. So um, big kudos to you, Paul. Um, and definitely uh, check out any of the links mentioned in the episode on the show notes page. And you can also go to paulanacone.com and you can also check out Paul's book called Coaching for Life as well. But yeah, with that, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and got value from it, if you feel like you have just a minute of your time available, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts, or just hit the review button in your podcast app of choice that you listen, uh, that you used to listen to this show. I just find that Apple Podcasts is the uh, most popular one and hence moves the show the most in terms of um, views and, and rankings and such. But really appreciate your feedback in any form you can give it uh, to me. And yeah, uh, I also want to leave a quote, uh, leave you with a quote as I often do at the end of every show. And this one apparently is by Professor X from <laughs> the best that I've been able to come up with. But um, the quote is, just because someone stumbles and loses their path, doesn't mean they're lost forever. So I do like this quote. And um, yeah, if you like X-Men, then you'll probably love it. <laughs> um, but it's a good one. So with that, um, thanks so much. And I have some uh, exciting interviews coming down the pike. Uh, so I don't want to spoil it, but uh, in the next few weeks, you're going to really enjoy, especially enjoy these ones. Um, have very important guests coming up. So yeah, I hope that you tune in and uh, subscribe to the show so that you get the ep episodes, all of them downloaded automatically to your to your phone or your, your computer, or wherever you whatever device you use to listen to the podcast. So have a great one, and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is your host, Mirwan Aranchad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.